while we uh, read the scripture for today. Uh, please open your Bibles with me as I read Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. The passage will also be on the screens behind me and the monitors in front of you. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound him, I'm sorry, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. As we continue our series on the parables, stories of the kingdom, historical study has revealed that Karl Marx, the self-proclaimed benefactor, the defender of the working class, never truly had a friendship with a single member of the working class. And so far as researchers were able to know, and this based on a book by Paul Johnson, a historian, a book called Intellectuals, he never set foot in a mill, a factory, a mine, or any industrial-type workplace. And yet, he pushed a mindset living a very self-conscious, bohemian, middle-class lifestyle. He did no poverty at times, but he always kept company with middle-class and upper-class intellectuals like himself. He and Engels, who co-authored the Communist Manifesto, worked together. And when they created the Communist League, Marx made sure that no working-class socialist had any position of influence in the Communist League. It was clear that for all of Marx's efforts to be a benefactor and a supporter of humankind, that he disliked people. And he continued to fought with members of his family. He lived in an atmosphere of verbal violence, arguing with everyone that he associated with for any length of time. He worked hard at becoming middle class himself. And thanks to his friend Ingalls, he lived the last 20 years of his life in a very comfortable middle class situation with homes 
in the last 10 years, Mark's never had less than two servants. Though he worked hard at all these other things. So what does this have to do with the parables and the stories of the kingdom? I think sometimes it's difficult to live up to what we claim to believe intellectually. Too often those of us who are the loudest in proclaiming truths and principles are the biggest offenders of those ideas. It's not an uncommon idea to, to love people, to have that idea of loving people and being their supporters, but rather not actually loving people. But love for people, or lack of it, reveals the quality and the effectiveness of our philosophy. And, and biblically, our love for people is even more revealing because it reveals our relationship with God, our Father. The authenticity, the, uh, the, the truthfulness of it all. The Ten Commandments make very clear this teaching. The first division, if you remember, points toward us loving God, the Father, with all our heart and our soul and our mind. Those last six point toward loving our neighbors and loving others. Leviticus 19, 18 sums it up. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, 1 John 4, 7 gives us the source of our love. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Love comes from God. It's through Him that we have love for those around us. So a couple questions as we start off this morning. Do you look at people, do I look at people as an inconvenience or as an opportunity to serve? Do I, do you look at people as an inconvenience or an opportunity to serve? In your mind, are people obstacles to accomplishing your goals? Or do people serve a key role in God's purpose for your life? We often hear of muggings in which neighbors don't even call the police from the safety of their homes for fear of getting involved. Jesus Christ told the story that came to be known as the Good Samaritan. Looking today at Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. Verse 25 there says, Christ uh, was, was the teaching and says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Christ to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This theologian, this legal expert in the Jewish law, believed as all Jews did back then, that keeping the law, their circumcision, their traditions, were what qualified them for eternal life. He wanted to embarrass Jesus and to impress the crowd with his superior skills and knowledge as an expert. He had an agenda. He had an ulterior motive. Christ responds to his question with a question. He said, what does Scripture say? And how do you understand that? This young theologian, this expert in the law said, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And Christ said, you've answered correctly. Do this. You will live. We know, of course, that we don't get eternal life through keeping the law. Romans 3.20 says that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, it's through the law that we become conscious that we're sinners. In Galatians 2.16-15, Paul writes, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This expert undoubtedly had been listening to Jesus. If you remember, crowds would follow along, and the Pharisees loved to ask these questions. They loved to test him. They loved to try to trap him. Other points, I think of Matthew 22, same question asked. Again, trying to trap Christ. In the same answer, Christ would say, You to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your might, and the second is your neighbor as yourself. But this young theologian had probably been thinking about this um, quite a bit, and thinking about the extent of responsibility that's implicit in loving others as yourself. In his mind, I'm sure that he thought that Christ, when he answered, would say that it's limited to the Jewish people. And not just Jewish people, but Jew, Jew, Jewish people of good faith and good character. He probably thought, I can't love everybody. Where do I draw that line? Do I love tyrants? Do I love blasphemers? Really, Jesus, who is my neighbor? His questioning was reasonable enough, but it shows that this wise and learned theologian wasn't tracking with Jesus. He wasn't following along with what Jesus had been saying in the, you know, the multitudes as he talked with him. Maybe he wanted to get a list. Do you remember Jewish people loved these lists and they had over 600-something rules? He's looking for a loophole in the law. He was saying, do I have to love everyone? If there's a neighbor that I must love, is there a non-neighbor that I don't need to love? Where did I draw the line, Lord? Where his fellow rabbis had spent a great deal of time already exploring this very issue. And many rabbis had taught that one's neighbor was really only a fellow Israelite. Most Jews followed that direction. They never considered that anyone could be a neighbor but a fellow Jew. In fact, when they looked at the Ten Commandments, this is what they heard. Thou shalt not steal from a Jew. Thou shalt not kill a Jew. Thou shalt not bear false witness to a Jew. They'd even rewritten part of the Sabbath law so that if a wall were to fall on someone on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to see if it was a Jew or a Gentile. If it were a Jew, they could keep working and get the Jew out. If it were a Gentile, he suffered until tomorrow. If you remember Jesus in Matthew 5, 43, had said, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. This was what Christ was confronting. His whole mindset. He was referring to that philosophy that personal enemies, even other Jews, were to be excluded from the circle of people that I should think of as my neighbor. And so that day, this budding theologian raised a familiar issue, a current event. And maybe he thought, hey, by asking this question, I'm going to impress people that I am up on current events. It's easy for you and for me to be critical of his attitude. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's more common today than we want to acknowledge. If we're honest, you and I are very good at limiting who our neighbors are. We can ride the CTA bus or the train downtown and never make eye contact. I still remember when I first moved here from rural Alabama, I would speak to people and the kids from ICI would grab my hands or say, don't speak, don't do that. Well, I still speak when I'm on the sidewalk. But that's a mindset that we have. We, we, we walk past people on a sidewalk. We don't acknowledge people as individuals. It's easy. We can live next door to our neighbors and live with them as if they're strangers, never knowing who they are, never knowing their needs. And if we're honest, we're just like that young expert. We tend to pick and choose our neighbors. Again and again, we put our needs first. We're busy. Every one of us are busy. We're busy. And we struggle with the disease of me. And like this young theologian, we wonder, certainly there are limits to my love. Certainly, there must be a limit to my responsibilities. Who is my neighbor? Who don't I have to love? Well, in response to this young theologian, Jesus told the story of what we know now as the Good Samaritan. He says, man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And he, and he saw him and passed by him on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles long. 17 miles long. But in that 17 miles, it dropped 3,300 feet in elevation. Huge. And that 17 miles is referred to as the way of the blood due to the amount of bloodshed by robbers over the years. It was on this road that this Jewish traveler was attacked in the story by Jesus, by these robbers who left him brutally beaten, bloody, naked, and near death. And along comes this priest who had probably just finished serving his two weeks at the temple in Jerusalem and was headed back home where many of the priests lived with their families. I say this because the passage says that 
he was going down. And it doesn't mean he's going south. He was going down. Because from Jerusalem to Jericho was such a steep drop. He probably was finished up and was probably looking forward to getting home, to seeing his wife, to seeing his kids, maybe to working on his house. His response was instinctive. He passed by on the other side. He did not want to be contaminated. We know that back then that if one touched a dead person, they were contaminated ceremoniously. To be cleansed took time, time that he didn't have, another week. It took money. So he chose to go around because he did not want to have that happen. We understand the entanglement sometimes that involvement with needy people causes. Helping people sometimes can force us to face difficult and sometimes even dangerous situations. We may not feel good about crossing over to the other side of the road, but it's certainly more safe. Besides, there are others who are more qualified than, than me. It, maybe the priest thought, I'm a priest. I'm not a paramedic. We find all kinds of excuses, don't we? When next, after the priest had passed by on the opposite side, next came another religious figure, a Levite. Levites had important roles in the service of worship of the temple, although they didn't serve at the altar. And his response was the same as the priest before him. Maybe he was afraid, feared for his safety. Maybe he didn't want to be defiled either. We need to be careful that we don't see these two, this priest and this Levite, as being bad men. I don't see that at all. They were just so busy, so busy doing work for God that they didn't quite love this man like God did. For them, often for us, people are who need help or problems. They are they're interruptions. They are, they're a bother, if we're honest. They, they, they invade our privacy. They pull us from our responsibilities. They take us from our pleasures. We all agree that they need help. And we hope that someone else will help them. But not us. Not now. Not here. It used to be that we tried to keep up with the Joneses. You remember the Joneses, these ever-present Jones neighbors that had everything new? They got a new car. You got a new car. Today, not only do we sometimes try to keep up with the Joneses, but we try to keep up with ourselves in this new culture with technology. According to British psychologist Dr. Richard Wiseman, the overall pace of life has increased by 10%, 20%, in some cases, 30% in the last 15 years. That's a big increase in the pace of life. That's what stress. Stress. In the midst of stress, we find ourselves saying, I don't have enough time. I have too much I've got to do. I'm stressed out. The average American 
eats his or her meal in ten minutes. Ten minutes. And the average American only eats two meals per day. We're busy. We're busy. As Christians, we start out right. We know that we're to love God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But in the midst of life, we lose those priorities. There are times that we really need to cut back so we can love people. Whereas Christ was telling this story about at this point, the audience was caught up in Jesus' story. They probably thought that this third person who was going to come along was this hero of the story was going to be a layman, one of us, one of them. They could have never expected the twist in the story that Jesus tells. Verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and we saw him, he had compassion. Some versions say he, had, he took pity. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. Please understand that when Jesus used the word, but a Samaritan, he touched a raw nerve. You ever been in a situation where you could feel the electricity, the tension? I bet you that day they felt the tension. But a Samaritan? <laughs> Samaritans were a mixed race. Descendants of people from other nations who were imported in to Israel. You had intermarried with the Jewish population. Because of this, the Samaritans enjoyed the lowest rung in Jewish social ladder. They were hated by the Jewish people. And the Samaritans returned their hate. Josephus, the historian, writes that Samaritans desecrated the, the temple in Jerusalem by scattering bones in, uh, one night in the midst of the Passover. That was mean. And they knew what they were doing. Around 50 AD, Samaritans killed a large number of Jews as they passed through Samaria. Jews had to change their custom of using signal fires to signal in the new year. Because why? Samaritans lit fires to confuse them. Can you kind of see that the little tension there going on between these people? At one point, the Samaritans denied they were even related to the Jewish people and renamed their temple a Temple of Zeus to avoid persecution. Well, the Jews took their negativity and went with it also. According to the Jewish laws, no court order was valid which, is, which had a Samaritan as a witness other than a divorce writ. Samaritans transmitted supposedly uncleanness wherever they walked, anything they touched, even their shadow contaminated things. A Jew was not liable for the death penalty for killing a Samaritan. A Jew could withhold wages from a Samaritan. An interest 
you remember, could not be charged to a Jew for loans, but it could be to a Samaritan. You and I tell the story of the good Samaritan, but first century Israel, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Today we have countless hospitals named what? The Good Samaritan Hospital. All over English-speaking world, there are Good Samaritan Hospitals. And when, when anyone does good, when there's danger, Good Samaritan is used. Good Samaritan is synonymous with doing good in the midst of risk. Over 30 states have Good Samaritan laws. And these laws protect people who are assisting a victim and might injure or hurt the person who was attacking. The word Samaritan has become synonymous in our culture with one who offers compassion and, and, and mercy and, and oftentimes at a great substantial risk. But in Jesus' day, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. That was the oxymoron. Oxymoron, of course, is those two words that are contradictory. They're used together, like the living dead or sweet sorrow or pretty ugly or awfully pretty. But what about, think about this, non-stop flight. Well, you got on a plane and it never stopped. You would never get to your destination. Or working vacation. I, I have these often. They're not a vacation. Original copies. Good Samaritan was an oxymoron. First century Jews, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. They were considered dirty, impure, sinners who worshipped in the wrong place. They claimed to be Jews. They had bad theology. We could go on down the list. A good Samaritan was unthinkable as a good ISIS member today or maybe a good Hamas member would be to an Israeli citizen. In fact, the words good and Samaritan would never have been used together back then. And we see the prejudice in the lawyer's response when Jesus finished the story and asked him, who was the neighbor to the injured man? The lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say, Samaritan. He said, the one who showed mercy. When Jesus introduced the Samaritan in this story, he deliberately, I think carefully, shocked his audience because the Samaritan did not pass by this wounded Jew, even though the highly esteemed priest and Levite did. Jesus asked the lawyer to put together two impossible and contradictory words, Samaritan and neighbor. Samaritan and neighbor. And it wasn't the Samaritan's Nationality that set him apart from these other guys. It was his compassion. It was the pity that he took on this other man. It wasn't just the Samaritan's emotions that were affected. 
His emotions led to action. He bandaged the man's wounds, poured wine on the wounds to cleanse them before putting oil on them to soothe the pain. Both the oil and the wine were super expensive back then. And then he takes this man, this wounded man on his own donkey. That means that he had to walk. Now think about it. If you were a Jew, you saw this Samaritan walking into a Jewish village with a Jew who was almost dead. It could be pretty dangerous. It could be a misunderstanding. It could be some misinterpretation of what happened there. <clears throat> I think if you get a picture, if you can imagine, it would be like a Native American riding into Dodge City in the late 1800s with a scout cowboy draped over his horse, saying, I found this guy on the road. I've tried to help him. Where's the doctor? Do you get it? Get a picture? Can you see him walking in, in you know, as a uh, Native American, walking into the salon with the double doors? Guys, I've got, I've got a man here who needs help. Probably been killed. The same situation applied there with the Samaritan and the Jewish person. But once the Samaritan got the injured man to the end, he, he took care of him. And verse 35 says that the next day that he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. And I saw different amounts, but the two denarii were either a, a, a few days of, of boarding up to two weeks. So the man went out of his way, using his money, using his resources to care for this person. We see this genuine neighborly love means interrupting our schedules, putting aside our to-do list, spending our money and using our resources. And too often, we're afraid to get involved with people that are needy. Getting close to people that are hurting always costs us money. Working with people's wounds seems to always get messy. Investing in the lives of hurting people will take us off our normal schedule. Crossing over that other side, the inconvenience, maybe subject us to some difficulties, but it's worth it. Crossing over requires dying to ourselves. With well, Jericho Road, about 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It always happens on the Jericho Road. It's those 17 miles of violence and oppression. It's that strip of suffering. The Jericho Road is a symbol. It's a symbol of suffering all around the world. Jericho Road is those 17 rooms in the corridor of the nursing home where my mom lived with Alzheimer's disease. Jericho Road is that 17-floor tenement building where we've all visited and where we don't feel safe. Jericho Road is the 17 blocks on the west side or maybe down in Inglewood where we hear about all the shootings. The Jericho Road is the 17 miles that maybe passes through Haiti or through Monrovia, Liberia, where there's 
poverty upon poverty and tremendous needs. The Jericho Road? It's those 17 years that my cousin took care of her husband after he had a stroke and he wasn't able to move around. 17 years. You see, the Jericho Road is any place where there's need, where there's violence, where there's hurt. Jericho Road is always with us. Jericho Road. Jesus offers insight into what it means to be someone's neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus offers here more than a definition of a neighbor. He offers the definition of loving my neighbor. The parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us that we're to get involved in people's lives. We can't be Christians and not be involved in the lives of people around us. It condemns non-involvement. It's also an invitation to be merciful and kind to those in need. A pastor was visiting a church member in a, a nursing home with an Alzheimer's unit. And it just happened that as the pastor went in, the church nurse also was a member of the same church. As they were talking, the nurse was watching another nurse care for the need of a man. And she said, that woman, you see her? That woman loves every single person in this unit. If you know anything about people with Alzheimer's, sometimes they're not very lucky. As they talked, pretty soon the husband of this resident walked in. And after a short time of talking, he said, you know, he says, you can pay somebody to shine the floor. But you can't pay someone to love the patients. You can pay money to get the floor shined and the bedpans changed and the linens changed, but you can't pay money to have a heart of love. I remember so well when my mom was in that hospital. I remember when she didn't know me. I remember some very, very special ladies in that nursing home that loved my mom. We would drop by after my mom died. We would drop by just to see those ladies because they loved her. They in turn loved us. You pay. You pay to have the floor shine. You pay to have those bedpans changed and cleaned. You have the linen changed by people who were paid, but can't pay someone to love. I think this parable challenges us to have hearts that love. Hearts that love anybody who's hurting on any of the Jericho roads of life. I can't help but think of Benny and Josie and this 17 thing. It's not quite right. It's around 15 years that they took care of, of Josie's mom. Jesus invites us to have hearts of love. We can't pay anyone to have a heart of love. We can pay people to clean the floors, change the beds. We can't pay anyone to love. It's a gift from God. I think that we see from this parable that God wants us 
to be kind and loving to our enemies. Maybe to those that we would love to hate. Who are your enemies this morning? Who would you love to hate? God wants to change our hearts and enable us to love. People, sometimes we'd rather not get involved. Sometimes it's easy to walk around God calls us to love. He gives us the love. He enables us to love. As I think of the attitudes that were displayed in this story, the robber's mindset was, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. The priest and the Levite, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. And the Samaritan was, What's mine is yours, and I'm going to share it. Love means moving toward people. Sometimes it's not very convenient. This week, two questions for you. <laughs> Which of these two friends, or tends to rather to be you, do you go out of your way to reward people because they're inconvenience? Or do you go out of your way to serve people because people need you? Let's play. Our Father in heaven.